0: Hey, I hope you enjoy hearing God's word in Hebrew. Bar uh, David, a good friend of ours, was willing to share this uh, John 13 in the language that many people are actually, actually interested about. So we're so grateful to actually have him speak uh, the language in Hebrew. So uh, my name is G. Um, I, I serve as an executive pastor here at the City Life Church wherever you are watching us this morning. Uh, welcome, and we're great to have you uh, join our service. Um, tis- this morning, uh, I actually have a privilege to uh, open God's Word. Uh, it's a very special word uh, from chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. Uh, it's very personal to me uh, because this is a one story that I wrestled with pretty much all my life. And the uh, the REA you actually seen them earlier uh, we are in Israel uh, many times. We actually go to the place, at, the, at least the location. We believe that this story actually has taken its place, and so we go there many times. And I have here, I have heard uh, this story uh, being unfolded in the action or the words that has been spoken through the word of John and the word of Christ. Uh, And so it has had a deep impact in my life. So today, I have privilege to share a few things with you that I have collected throughout the years. And even today, uh, um, I wanted to end with this thing where the Lord has been just given to me at the end. I never actually had this thought before, but you actually have to wait until the end of the the sermon to find out what that is. But let's go right into uh, uh, the scripture itself, John 13. Uh, We'll read it, and I'm going to read from... New King James Version, so you can follow along. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And after supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord. Are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is baited needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most surely I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lipped up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let me begin by giving you a little bit of background of this story. You're probably wondering what is happening here. Well, first of all, we want to begin with the notion that Jesus' public ministry has ended. He is now moving into the place where he will be intimate with his disciples. Only few that were chosen that were able to actually partake of a Passover cedar, or we call it instead of feast, of a Passover, and we believe that this is true is because the three counts of the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mentions about them celebrating the Passover meal together, in which we get the Lord's Supper in our Christianity. But here in John, John actually takes a different turn. This is a story that's very unique in a way is because it is not mentioned in other three Gospels. Now, that does not mean that John is doing something completely different, but he is adding on to something that was very unique and important to him. And as you know, as you've been following us, the Gospel of John is quite different than other Gospels. Exception of a one story, which is the feeding of the 5,000 is the only story that is mentioned that we know that is mentioned in the other three Gospels. And so here now, you see John between from the ordinating the the Lord's Supper, but here, John is actually tackling a very intimate moment between Jesus and the disciples. In verse 1, it begins with, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now, you're probably wondering, what do you mean by his hour had come? We made multiple examples through the gospel of John. There's a mentioning of the hour, the hour is coming, hour is coming. And in John 12, 23, he said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. You're probably wondering here in this sentence, he knew what time this was. And I will say that there was a great mission that he had it in mind. One mission was for him to be the comforter of this world by healing the sick, Giving the sight to the blind, helping the poor to receive the gospel, the good news preached to them, was the role of the comforter, the good shepherd he is. But there was another mission, as we know, that the Lamb of God has come into the world. And as so, John the Baptist, in chapter 1 of John, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I believe this is the beginning of him taking on the role of the Lamb of God. And this is no coincidence that John is making this connection during the introduction of the Passover. If you really want to know in detail, this event is actually taking on the Thursday evening, which is in the calendar, Jewish calendar year of Nisan 15, 1-5. But the earlier that day, which is, you know, the Jewish calendar, Jewish day starts in the evening. It's not like us in the Gregorian calendar where we actually start in the day. Their day starts in the evening. On the earlier that day, which will be Nisan 14, will be the day that was designated for the temple to actually sacrifice the lamb that will be used for this feast. And so now let's just give a little bit of background here that Jesus understood, that Jesus has seen that the lamb has been sacrificed, and now he knows that he will actually have to do the same. Not only for the sins as as mentioned in the temple, the Jewish customs and traditions, but much more that he will be able to be the Lamb of God for the entire world. So you see, John has specific reason why he wants to begin with the word Passover. The hour reference already made it, but he understood, Jesus clearly understood that this is the time. And it's very important for us that we understand what actually is going through in the mind of, Of Jesus at this time. We know that his public ministry has ended. He knows that he's about to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, becoming the Lamb of God. He's about to go through the most grueling moment as a man, son of man here on earth. And he understood the pressure that he's about to leave those whom he loved, which we will tackle a little bit. There is a lot of weight on this moment. This is not a hunky-dory, having good time, everybody's just breaking bread and have fun. But no, even the observation of the Passover has been celebrated in a very sober environment. Because they understand the freedom came. Because God actually took him out from the land of Egypt, from the bondage of slavery. And that's exactly what he's about to do now. And so pressure that is, that is on Jesus, the weight that is bearing his shoulder, it must be mentioned here. But he ends with this, he loved them to the end, verse 1. He loved them to the end. And I would like to pose to you, as you read from chapter 13 all the way to Jesus being captured by the soldiers and Jewish leaders, I want you to have this thing in mind. He loved them to the end. Everything that he will say from here onward will be for the disciples. Think about it this way. If you knew that you are about to die, and 33 years on earth for Jesus, he spent three years with the disciples, he called them their family, and it's important for him that he leave with something that is important for them. And that's why I believe that this is an intimate setting and it's an intimate moment that John wanted you to understand that is not only reserved for the disciples, but it's also reserved for you and me. And so I wanna have some weight here that we cannot just read 13 all the way through, just, okay, well, this is what Jesus said, but maybe we need to pay a little bit more attention because in a sense, it's a dying man's wish. That's what I I would like to call it. We know that he's gonna be resurrected, I know. But if you know that you're about to die, and you only have a few moments, and with the loved ones, what would you say? And this is the foundation that I want you to start thinking as you read onward from chapter 13. In verse 2, supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, and John now introduces Judas in this story. This intimate moment between the disciples and Jesus was a man who will ultimately betray him. And even the scripture that we read this morning, there is a multiple mentioning of Judas and what role he plays. And this will be really important for us because Judas, existence of Judas in this story is what marks this, make this story much more important for all of us as believers. John immediately placed the betrayal of Judas to the Satan's working. And he says, the devil having already put it into heart of Judas Iscariot. But I believe if you just know what is happening, even previous chapter, chapter 12 onward, you see there's a thematic here that many times people came to Jesus for the wrong reason. They had a specific idea about Jesus that was not accurate at all. Some were looking for a political Messiah that would deliver them from the Romans' rule. Jesus clearly didn't meant that and said, that's not me. I came as a lamb. I'm about to die for the sins of the world. And that's exactly what he's trying to say to his disciples. And I'm sure this didn't rhyme well with Judas. And think about it this way, you know that you're a hero, that you've been following for three years. They knew that he, this is the person who's going to save our nations. Ultimately, he had the wrong idea that it was not the political savior, but it will be the spiritual savior. Not only limited to Jewish people alone, but the entire earth. Judas just could not see that. And so it is a Satan's working, but I believe it started way long ago. There was a thing that is dwelling in his heart. It's already been brewing. It already started from his heart to betray Jesus. In Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And I want to add here that it is with our hearts that we betray our Lord. And our action is simply an outcome of a condition of our heart. And in verse 3, again he used the word he knows. Jesus knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and going to God. And he shows that how confident he was. In this moment, when you know the betrayal is in your presence. The presence of Satan himself is on the table sharing meal with you. Knowing that you will die soon. All these things is going through his mind. One thing is clear. He was laser focused to his destination. And that destination is knowing, reuniting with the Father God of heaven. And that was his mission. But we know one more thing is there is this longing to be with God, but also this, another side as mentioned in verse 1, that he loved them, knowing that he will have to leave those whom he loves. And this is the tension that Jesus was enduring in this moment. In verse 4, Rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel and guarded himself. And I'm sure you heard this many times what Jesus is doing, so I will not mention why he was doing that, which you will see is much bigger than that. It's a dramatic moment. And I'll tell you why this is dramatic. It's because you see the rabbi, the teacher, the Lord gets up from the meal. Just imagine you're somebody that you look up to. Maybe it's a president. Maybe it is somebody that you respect very much that gets off from the table, take his robe off and putting on a towel to guard himself. In biblical times and in the scripture, we know that garment actually represent identity. And so it's very clear that Jesus is taking his identity to take on another identity. And we know that identity is and that identity is servant and here Jesus is about to give one of the greatest lesson the most important lesson for the disciples which is the servant leadership because you have to understand that these 12 exception of one is about to change the world is about to go to the world to bring the message of salvation the God's love for the world to the world. And it is imperative that they understood what it is, what it means to lead, what spirit that he is calling for his disciples to do. And we know the servant leadership and what's behind the servant leadership is humility. And so let's go to this dramatic moment that's unfolding in our very eyes. In verse five, he poured the water into basin and begin to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now think about this for a second. Your Lord, your rabbi, your teacher is doing the most of the lowest duty by washing their feet. Now, you might be wondering, well, that's pretty awkward. And I'm sure that's what the disciples felt. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? How, how, how can you wash my feet? This is not your job. You're my rabbi. You should not do this. Why are you doing this? But the disciples remains quiet. Little bit of side note. In this very moment, we know that Jesus is watching the disciples' feet. You know who else is included in this disciples? Judas. Judas, who would betray him. In his face. But I love so much about this part of our Lord, is that until the last moment, until the very last moment, that He give him opportunity to turn from, turn away from the Satan's working. But obviously that was not the case. We know that Judas will follow along, go along with the plan that he made, the pact that he made with the high priest and the Pharisees and scribes to betray him. And this will take place in this moment. Wash the disciples' feet, and then they wipe them on the towel that he was girded with. And I think you have to understand this dramatic moment, what is happening. The feet in the biblical time, they wore sandals and the feet is what is the most dirty because you're walking around a different part of the city, a lot of dirt, a lot of different elements that are all around. Not that sanitized as what we think about it today. But at that time, the feet washing was one of the worst job to have even for the slaves. All that to say. He is washing it, but also he's putting out himself the remaining, the dirt that's been accumulated, and which is one of the pictures that we see what Jesus do, not only physically but spiritually, taking the sin upon himself, this picture of a Messiah Is willing to die for our sins, but also willing to take on the very sin that we offended God with. He will be willing, he's willing to put it on himself. This is the foretelling about what he is about to do on this earth, and that's exactly what he does. And when he gets to Simon Peter, we know the story. He objects, or the first thing he says is, Lord, are you washing my feet? And if you've been with us in Israel, we actually reenact this. One of the things that we learned is that Peter probably was the last person that Jesus had washed his feet. And we can talk more about it. Maybe I can say it in some other places. But we believe that Peter is one of the last ones. And so, which that means that he's been observing Jesus washing the disciples' feet one by one, and it gets to him. Finally, he says, Lord, washing are, are you washing my feet? You shouldn't do all this. And Jesus said, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this, and which is, I want to tell you. And is what he's saying is, I am doing this to teach you something. I am doing this act. There is a lesson that's about to happen and which you will know, which is a very normal rabbi to disciples, the teaching method per se. And that's what Jesus is doing here. But what does Peter say in verse eight? You shall never wash my feet." What a dramatic moment this would have been that Jesus is about to wash the feet of the Peter. He said, "You never wash my feet as if he's proclaiming to the rest of the 11, "This is what you should have done. You should have said this. I am right here. This is always the Peter always. Opposing somehow trying to teach Jesus. I know sometimes we try to somehow, we think that we know more than God. And we tried in the same instance, Peter tried to teach Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered very calmly. I don't think it was a rebuke, but I believe that it was a very calm, comforting voice. He said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And though we know the reaction that what Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, give me a bath. And here we realize that Peter, self-righteous, and but also very insecure, that he do not want to be rejected. He do not want to be separated from his Lord. And so when Jesus actually corrects him, he says, please, everything. I want to be part with you. In verse 10, he who baths, he who is bathed need only wash his feet, but is completely clean. But you are clean, but not all of you. Now we know that there is multiple instances, like I said earlier, that Judas is mentioned. This is what we're talking about. There's are two intent here actually. One is talking about for Peter himself, but also Judas. When he says, those who baited. We believe that this might be a Jewish uh, uh, ceremonial washing or the ritual bath. And this is something that, that you do prepare to, preparing to, actually celebrating a different feast. You want to purify yourself before you actually go into the meal, but this was part of the process. So only impure part after the Ritual bath would be your feet. That's the only thing that would be re- remaining that is unclean. So, this reason why, that one reason why we believe that Jesus said, you just need to wash your feet. That's it. You don't need to wash anything else. And verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not unclean. Verse 12, so when he heard he had washed their feet, taken his garment, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done? to you. And you see here this teaching moment between the Jesus and the disciples. Now he's about to give the explanation of a why the foot washing. And this is what is happening. There's a symbolism of a baptism here that we are cleansed and regenerated. But one thing is for sure, the ritual bath, though we are cleansed where we are purified and we are regenerated, but we constantly needs to be re-washed like our feet. My My mentor always told me this one story of how our feet is the only thing that connects us to this earth. And that is what reminds us that we are of this world because we are connected to this earth. But when Jesus washes our feet, what happens is when he washes our feet, when he purifies us for a brief moment that we are with him in heaven, how much more we need to be constantly washed and regenerated through God's word. And I'm going to go fast here because we're running out of time. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And that's the lesson. That's what's behind all this. But the biggest lesson of all that we see is the example has been given not only to the disciples, but also you and me. This lesson is not just for that moment, but it's been given to those who will call upon his name. That will follow him. That will bear the name Christian. That this will be what separates us from the world. Us be willing to go to the darkest place on earth, go to most heartbroken people of the world, to be willing to go there and wash and cleanse and be the mission of God to the world that desperately seeking for God. In verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So let me end with three things this morning. Number one, we are blessed through obedience, as Jesus said. Obedience to Jesus is what makes Christians. And the blessedness, the key to blessedness, blessedness of the kingdom relies heavily on our obedience to Christ and his word. We have to take this seriously That if we do not obey God's word, there is no blessing. But if if we obey God's word, blessing is just the result of our obedience to God. So we are blessed through obedience. Number two, we can wash one another's feet. Now you might be wondering, does this mean we have to go and literally wash people's feet? As I have told you earlier, that is not the case here. As a matter of fact, I think throughout the history, there was instances where people have abused the ceremonial event to act more holy or righteous. Now, I'm not saying that it's not wrong, that it is wrong, it's not wrong to do but what is behind, the spirit behind of a foot washing. So how do we actually wash one another's feet? I'm glad you asked. I believe that we can wash each other's feet by encouragement. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We, by our words, can wash one another. And number two, edification. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. And finally, we can wash one another's feet by expressing expressing our love, our love for our brothers and sisters. In John 15, 12, Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. These are the ways that we can wash and regenerate our brothers and sisters. And last thing that I want to say And this is something that the Lord revealed this to me yesterday. I was preparing for this sermon. And the last thing is Jesus knows our suffering. Now you might be wondering, how does this fit to today's lesson? Now in today's story, though we learned about true blessedness through obedience and watching one another, we find that he had extreme levels of burdens on his shoulder at this moment. Number one, Jesus leaving his loved ones. Observing the Passover, reflecting upon the Passover lamb. Jesus becoming the lamb of God. Teaching the most important lesson to his disciples. And there's Judas, who will betray him. And finally, the presence of Satan himself. It is with all of this weight on his shoulder, it is with this heavy burden and heavy heart, he understood the suffering that we bear here on earth. Right now, you might be suffering by losing your job. You might be suffering through different things, financial burdens, different things. I can. Just list, maybe some of you, I know that some of our members that we have heard this week that are actually suffering from COVID-19. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus knows your suffering. He was born as a man who bare the burdens. He understands the suffering of this earth. And he can relate with you and me. That's what makes our Savior so unique. It's because he understands you and I. In Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want to encourage you this morning that yes, Jesus hears. He is exactly the place where you are. Though we are not gathered here in this building, he is with us and he sympathizes with us, this path that we are on. My encouragement to you is call upon his name. He will relate with you. He will understand your cry. That's the God we serve. God who hears. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the example that you have given us. Example to serve our brothers and sisters, comforting one another, encouraging one another, especially time like this. Lord, I pray, Lord God, wherever we are, whatever the situation we are, Lord, we will cry out to you that our cry will become worship, the moment of worship to let you come and minister to us. Even right now, Lord, I pray that you minister to, our, to everyone that is watching right now, God. I pray that, Lord, that you will invade, invade in their homes, that they will sense your shalom, your peace, as they pray to you, as they cry out to you. I thank you for the examples that you have given us. Lord, let us be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much this morning. Next, our campus minister, Earl, will be sharing a few announcements with you. Thank you so much.